Hello, Furidashi listeners. In this episode, Lauren and I discuss the 2022 game Pentiment from Obsidian Entertainment. We look at how the game functions as a form of productive historical revisionism and how attention to historical circumstances works itself out in terms of game mechanics and systems. We also discuss the mystery plot structure and the many ways in which Pentiment subverts it. If you like what you hear and want to help keep our free episodes as an ad-free experience, head on over to patreon.com forward slash footydashi, where you can sign up for our bonus episodes. If you contribute at an elevated level, you can also gain access to our Discord server and to drafts and advanced copies of our writing projects. Regardless of what you choose, we're glad you're here. And now, on with the show. And welcome back to Furidashi. We are here again after not a super long break. We've been gone about a month. Um, Lauren is here with me too. Although before we get into today's topic, I do want to emphasize that Lauren has been quite ill <laughs> over the past couple of weeks. And so I want you all to be extremely forgiving of anything she may or may not have to say. And at the same time, if you feel like I am talking too much, it's probably because I want my friend to get better and I don't want her to overexert herself. But at least Lauren should say hi to everyone. So say hi. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for that lovely introduction, Nicholas. Um, That's really, yeah, that's really beautiful. I too would like to feel better, but I can't, (laughs) as all my colleagues know, I can't stay away from work that I enjoy too long. And unfortunately, (laughs) I think that I've been getting really excited and that's not really great for recovery. No, Um, it is not. I'm trying to be as low energy as possible, but obviously I'm, I'm always excited to be here. Yeah, we always try to be a low-energy, low-effort podcast, but we always fail in that, in that regard. Um, speaking of which, um, since we are now in year three of Furidashi, uh, Lauren and I have decided to change things up a bit. We changed things up a bit last year, and some things worked, some things didn't. You don't get to know what did and didn't. We're just going to get rid of the things that didn't and keep the things that did. But in order to sort of further our goals of, you know, making the best content for all of you out there to enjoy, uh, we're going to be doing fewer, longer episodes per month. So at the end of the day, you're still going to be getting the same amount of free content, the same amount of Patreon content. You're just going to be getting it in two episodes as opposed to four. And the reason for that is because we feel that there are often times when we were like really, really getting into a con into like a conversation. And then it's like, oh, well, it's now been 35 minutes that we're recording. So we got to stop. 
Bye. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of it honestly came from self-imposed kind of restrictions about basically like our own time, right? And our own yeah. like, you know, weekends and like the ability for editing. And then it also came from like, well, where do we want to put our energy? And I, <laughs> as she says, having low energy. <laughs> and I think that for me, like the biggest thing is making sure that our audience gets the full length of the conversation. Yeah. And we started noticing a trend where we would stop recording and we would keep talking. Yeah. And I think that's the biggest thing for this. So what's really great is that I did like a really super brief poll with like a couple of new listeners and they all actually wanted a longer, they like one hour long podcasts. Yeah. And for them, one hour also means anywhere from 45 minutes to 55 minutes. Yeah. So that's kind of the duration you should expect, whether it's 45, 47, uh, 52, who, who knows, but that's <laughs> yeah. kind of going to be the, um, the, the format going forward. And then that means wipe once again, for our Patreon users, you're going to be getting a lot more instructional and a, a lot more of a deep dive content, uh, in this coming year. So yep. yeah, super, super excited. And on that note, we have also decided for each episode, instead of just talking about certain game design issues more broadly, and then sort of like discussing examples as they come up, we have decided to actually focus on particular games for each free episode and use that as a jumping off point for then talking about those you know particular issues that we would like to discuss. And so for this month's free episode, we are going to be talking about a game that I, I know both of us have really, really enjoyed, although that's kind of irrelevant, and that is the game Pentiment, which came out in, I believe, the end of November. It was either end of November, or early December. I believe it was the end of November, um, but don't don't quote me on that. I'm just trying to think of when people were starting to play it and telling me to play it, right? Yeah, I don't know if this is the same for you, Lauren, but for me, this game kind of came out of nowhere. I had no idea it was because it's been in development for a really long time. But I had heard nothing about it until like literally one day I was just perusing the games that had become available on Game Pass and it was just there. And I was like, a game? like a medieval manuscript <laughs> yes yeah, i want to play I, this game <laughs> yeah. um yeah i think like yeah to briefly introduce it for me i was kind of aware of pentiment only because i'm in the games industry yeah um but what's interesting to me is that i didn't realize how small the team actually was and so if you don't play through pentiment or you're you're looking at Pentiment as a, as a new user on Xbox Game Pass. You're going to see Obsidian Entertainment, and that's a huge game company, um, which, it, you know, they're very well-known, very well-established. But the team for Pentiment honestly only started out as about four or five developers at the very yeah. beginning before yeah. they really got functional right features and systems like just in the core movement and then started building and building on top of that for the larger systems and for the narrative systems, which means that, it was um, built in with Obsidian Entertainment's proprietary tools. It was built with Obsidian Entertainment's uh, interface, like the OEI tool that if you may have ever seen in your game development studies, right, you'll look at branching narrative, how to do choice. And it was also a game that then, right, scaled up to still a relatively small portion of the larger Obsidian studio. Yeah. And so this is a great example of a smaller game that a lot of people might initially think of as an indie project, but coming from a larger, more well-established AAA uh, development team. So it's interesting because one of the things that Obsidian is, well, not known for, but they were kind of into in their early history was 
designing a lot of uh, like sequels for other arguably more famous games. Although I would argue in many instances, the sequels are actually better than their originals. I'm not going to name names, but you can figure that out for yourself. But Pillars of Eternity, when it was under development, started in a similar way. It was one of these projects where it was like, it was kind of a pet project within the studio that kind of built up steam. They had to do other work in order to be able to fund it. But then, you know, once it actually came out, like Pillars of Eternity had originally kind of a huge cult following, but then it built up steam. And then, you know, they eventually designed a sequel. And as a result, then Obsidian has been kind of known for these particular kinds of role-playing games, especially. And so to me, it was interesting because like when I first heard about Pentiment, I was like, this does not sound like an Obsidian game at all. And then I played it and I was like, actually, no, I can see those like Obsidian things in there, despite the fact that really in many ways it's kind of a very historically focused game. It takes place in a very specific time period, very specific historical events surround the the three acts that take place. And so even though we're not, you know, it's not Fallout New Vegas or and it's not like, you know, Kotor 2, but it does have kind of those elements of like how you those those role-playing elements of like character interaction and like dialogue and sort of like moral ambiguity like all that stuff is there all the obsidian stuff is there just in this sort of like more historical frame yeah uh, so speaking of that history uh why don't we dive further into right the history of this game or like yeah. the history that this game represents because i think that kind of what we're getting at here is pentiment or rather like so what nicholas was describing is pentiment is like this medieval it's not even it's early, not really, technically it's early modern. It's early it's modern. It's not, yeah, it's not, it's not medieval. medieval. It's early modern. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, that's what, that's what I was trying to say. Is like it's not really a medieval period. It's like that. Should I should I explain that distinction for people who may well, not? Yeah. So that's kind of what I'm trying to get at here. Is that Pentiment yeah. is a title where right someone like me would be like, I know it's not the medieval period because it's not a medieval fantasy title, right? It's my literary <laughs> studies coming in. Um, but I'd be like, it's is it early modern? I was like, was it mid modern? I'm like, no, that seems a little too far. So yeah, Nicholas, yeah. go ahead and describe the time period this game technically takes place in because honestly that's incredibly important to yes. the narrative and to the gameplay so it takes place entirely in the 16th century although i actually wrote down the years so that i would remember so act one is 1518 and i'll explain why that's significant act two is 1525 and act three is 1543 so we're talking the the early half of the 16th century why is this important so this is a period that especially in like the context of italy would be known as the renaissance but if you talk to academic historians, they don't typically use the term Renaissance. They prefer to use the early modern period. So what characterizes the early modern period? It's essentially this period of transition away from the sort of social and economic institutions that characterized the European, and I emphasize European, Middle Ages, because there are Middle Ages in other countries and regions as well into what is sort of the early stages of what will eventually develop into sort of like the liberal like capitalist order that we now live in but in this particular period you still have these sort of like holdovers from medieval institutions medieval sort of socioeconomic arrangements like feudalism all that stuff is still in play but it is in the process of breaking down and so when i said earlier that 1518 is a significant year this is one year. So the game begins one year after Martin Luther had nailed his quibbles to the church door in Wittenberg. 
And so this is sort of, even though it's kind of now taken on a legendary status, and in fact, Luther had actually circulated these ideas prior to that, um, this is sort of considered to be the seminal moment that begins the so-called Reformation, the sort of like cataclysmic change in the nature of the, the Western church. Uh, 1525, the sort of the, the year that Act Two takes place in, is extremely significant because this is, and in fact, the Swabian League is even mentioned in game at one point. Um, but the I th- but the part that they kind of leave off that is actually especially relevant for Act Two is that why why did the Swabian League exist? Well, that's the the year of the the Great Peasant Revolt in Germany, the sort of the German Peasant Revolt, as it's sometimes called. Um, and this was this huge uprising, particularly in parts of Saxony and Bavaria. And the game takes place in Bavaria, by the way. And so you have peasants literally revolting as a result of sort of like their own coming coming into a new awareness of like their status, their their social relations to the people who supposedly rule over them, and their desire to want to fundamentally change those things. It led to the creation of this uh, document called the Twelve Articles, um, which in many ways reads like a kind of proto-socialist revolutionary text. In fact, um, Engels wrote a very famous book about the, the peasant uprising in Germany. I mean, he was ultimately critical of it, but he definitely saw it as this moment when like, there was this social transformation taking place. So that's the background. That's sort of like the macrocosmic thing that is happening, like the relations between social classes. The church is starting to lose some of its influence slash power. And then as a result of that, um, you know, the powers that be fight back often brutally. I mean, because one of the things that marks the same century is the Inquisition. And that is the church's attempt in many ways to train, reassert that control that it used to have. Um. There's a lot more that I could get into, but that's sort of like the background. It's a really tumultuous time in, I don't want to call it German history. I mean, these are German-speaking people, but also Germany isn't really a thing <laughs> in this time right. period. And I, I think that's what's really important is that hopefully for our, our avid listeners out there, you're already kind of picking apart the mystery, right, of what Nicholas is saying is that this is a real world events, right, of that have happened that yeah. are grounding this whole gameplay and narrative, which is incredibly important to the choices, right, and to the backgrounds, yeah. right, that you actually have to choose from. Because it's really interesting to me the way in which the relationship of the real world and these things that as a like someone who actually studied this period of time a little bit, I will admit that most of my literary studies was done in Romance period. So that would be in the 19th century um, and the 18th century. So that's the 1800s and the 1700s. Um, that's not all Renaissance because that later in is Victorian um, yeah. and Elizabethan. So that's more of the, the periods of time I'm familiar with. And the 1500s right, are obviously not what I actually studied, maybe except for like a well, no, actually, that's way earlier. That was Beowulf is way earlier than the 1500s. <laughs> yes, it is a lot earlier. So, okay, there we go. I just like, you know, I skipped that entirely. Um, But I'm somewhat familiar with it, right? I'm yeah. somewhat going, oh, if I choose like Flanders, like this is actually, like I kind of understand it. But yeah. it's not quite, right? I, I'm not sure how it would be, right? As I was a player, if I literally was like, I don't, I mean, I guess this language is important. Right? Like, let yeah. me min-max this. Like, which language is the most important? Oh, I think Latin is cool. I'll choose Latin. And then you, like, get accidentally, like, oh, this is great. You can read things. But then yeah. you can't speak German. 
Like, yeah. oh, well, okay. <laughs> and I, I think <laughs> because, right? Because it takes yeah. place in Bavaria. So I think that, yeah. you know, um, I think it'd be really interesting to kind of like, you know, kind of piece that together, right? Uh, for our listeners out there, if you can kind of recognize that, like, without going into that history so much so that the user, right, or the player um, is kind of alienated from it, but kind of bringing them into that that world. And I believe, yeah. Nicholas, when we were when we were looking at this earlier, you described this as games as historiography. Is that the uh, right histori- Historiography. It just, historiography. Historiography is just, just a fancy word that means, like, how you tell history historiography how you tell yeah. history also like laurenography how to always mispronounce the word that you use. <laughs> laurenisms <laughs> yeah all right um so why don't we kind of like talk more about kind of this uh i am now i've read it i'm now gonna say it wrong um his historiography historiography you're sick it's fine i can say yeah i am i am very you. sick guys as yeah. you can see because i'm like this is or as you can hear um, why don't we go a little bit further into that? Because I think yeah. for me, the biggest pull of this game was not just, I mean, a huge history buff, obviously, was not just the amount of literary detail it was and the actual mechanics of it. I don't want to, we don't want to spend too long, right, I guess, on on history. But it's yeah. such an important, it's just so important to the game that like it really it, uh, needs the deep dive for us. So there, there are a lot of really interesting aspects. So like if you think of sort of the aesthetics of the game, first of all, the game is framed as if it's sort of someone composing a, um, a manuscript, an, an illuminated manuscript. And so then the, the images that you see in game are the actual manuscript illuminations themselves. And you can even periodically see the text that is being written into this book. As you play through the game, you will eventually discover what that frame is because it's not explained to you from the beginning. And that is a huge spoiler, so I'm not going to actually reveal it. Um, But then in addition to that, there are a lot of kind of textual qualities to these things. Like, for example, when characters are speaking, they will speak in different scripts. Some will speak as if, like, so, so for example, the printer in town speaks in print. Um, Andreas, who is a more literate character, speaks in a more refined and sort of like precise hand. Hands are what we what. what so when you're doing manuscripts, a hand is sort of like an individual writing style. Yeah, and well, I, I think that you would call a hand a font right yeah. now, maybe. I yeah. mean, it's still a hand, and that your writing style is different than right your partners or like you know your yeah, coworkers. But. Yeah, because it's not quite handwriting, and it's not quite print. It's it's like. Because it's a very formalized style of handwriting. Yes. In other words, because yeah. you have to be consistent. Um, but then when you, when you're like talking with the characters who are, you know, either less literate or in some cases even illiterate, like they're the hands that is used to represent their their speech is much like scratchier, and it's like sometimes often very difficult to read. And in fact, there isn't even an accessibility option in the game where you can standardize all the scripts because. If you're not a paleographer, you might have a hard time. Yeah, reading I, some of these I actually did that, right? And I think yeah. for me, like, I don't, I think it's just because, well, I mean, once again, I'm reading like regular text and I'm re- misreading it. Yeah. Um, but I think for me, like, it was something that was really important, especially like I read text all day for my work. So I was yeah. like, look, I need something that's easy to read that I'll get. And I still got the distinctions accurately represented between the printer, Andreas, um, the monks. Yeah. Right. Also, also spoke differently, uh, and I believe they also use different fonts or text for different languages as well. Yes. 
So when you're speaking, there's a group of Italians that come in later in the game. I happened to speak Italian. So that was really cool. I got to have the whole conversation. I'm not sure how that would have played out if I didn't speak Italian. And I think it was really great to be able to like preserve some of those handwriting from this time, right? And the aesthetics with the actual ability of like the mechanics of being able to read it or translate it or be able to see, right? The, the text that was on screen that I had chosen, right? To make that character. Yeah. And I think for me, what it does a really great job of and why I wanted to highlight it is because it represents the sort of the fundamental diversity of this period and in variety or like, however you want to characterize it, because certainly like when I was in school, um, history was often very, cat no okay you have to get down now sorry my cat has to history was was very overruled (laughs) by cats (laughs) it was in fact completely cat dominated society i love no dogs i love my cat but she was literally trying to shove her face into the microphone and i can't have that right now um anyway so like history when i was in school was often taught in this extremely flattened way where it's like not just sort of in the big you know the big man big historical events but also there wasn't really a sense of like within any given time period, like the ways in which like a lot of like differences were actually trying to work themselves out. It's one of the reasons why later in life I gravitated towards Marxism is because it's one of the few historiographic approaches that actually tries to do that. Um, But as a result, then in the game, you get a lot of things that people might seem might think are rather odd for quote unquote the past like the fact that one of the monks at the Abbey is I can't remember if he's Ethiopian or Eritrean, but he's black. Like he's African <laughs> and, and I, I know. So I'm gonna... I think the monk is Ethiopian. Yeah. I, I, probably I think Ethiopian. he is Ethiopian. Yeah. And to, to shit on um, Yoshi P a little bit, like there is for, for, I don't know why it persists so strongly, but there is this sense that you, that sort of continues to exist in society that somehow like the middle ages or like early modern Europe was just like turbo white, even though like, the, the whole idea of whiteness wouldn't have really made sense to them at all. And so like the representation of diversity in terms of race, the representation of variety in terms of like different type, because, you know, also you have like print versus manuscript versus like oral histories. All of these things are sort of in tension with one another. They overlap each other. They sort of layer on top of one another and representing that in a game and doing a kind of historiography where sort of that, that variety you're both like using historical aesthetics but the variety that sort of exists within those historical aesthetics are also being foregrounded as well to me that's a really important act of revisionism like it's it's taking this sort of stereotype way in which we view the past and sort of representing it to you so as to get you to sort of break down those assumptions that that you might have while at the same time also telling this very personal story about an artist who is sort of struggling with his place in the world and the sort of relationship between like the microcosm, the macrocosm, historical events, like, you know, historical aesthetics, but then also the choices that, as Lauren noted, the choices you get to make in terms of like what your background is. You might have knowledge of the occult. You might have certain languages that that your character can speak if you decide, you know, one background over another. And then that too colors how you progress through the game. Like all of that is really sort of really brilliantly integrated. 
And then the other thing that I want to add in terms of this variety and diversity is that it also deals very honestly with gender roles. Like it, it actually really accurately presents the sort of variety of experiences that women and men had in this particular period, this idea that like people who lived in the past had an incredible breadth and like diversity to their experiences that we often deny them simply because we want to believe that history is this thing that can be known in like very specific, very concrete terms. And I kind of hate that. Yeah, no, and I, I hate it as well. But I think what's really important about this point is that when we look at historical revisionism, it sometimes gets a bad rap on the internet for kind of misconstruing or mistelling accurate facts, right? Because when we think of history, we tend to think of history as a fact. And quite frankly, right, if you've ever taken a really great history course, whether it's been in high school, college, postgraduate, on YouTube, um, you'll know that something that's been said a lot in history classes, right, is that history is told by the victor. Yeah. And this is really important when we look at diversity and racial bias and racial institutionalism, because when we look at the true facts or how people lived back in from a cultural anthropological standpoint, we find that there is a lot of diversity. There are a lot of wider gender roles because, and quite frankly, like I, I don't want to really say this as a, as a, as a hard fact, by the way, this is just to, to kind of show, showcase the, the breadth of diversity this game truly like kind of foundation, uh, had a foundation for to then build from, <clears throat> excuse me, is that when we look at history, from a cultural lens, right, from a sociological lens, we recognize that actually the institutions that have honestly in our modern age perpetuated, right, sort of racial and gender stigmas and roles didn't really exist, right? Because of that, there are ways that when Luther, right, put the documents on the church, there was the foundations of an institution, right? The church was the the largest institution. And we kind of actually see institutionalization in this game as well. Yes. But it's that parallel, right, between the peasantry, right, between the historical people, right, the sociology of a situation, right, versus this need, uh, in scare quotes, for historical accuracy, also in scare quotes, (laughs) perpetuated by an institution that allows these types of metaphor and allows the type of story and the type of diversity and the type of choices that are within this game because of its tie with historical revisionism. And so I just really want to point that out because games are a work of culture and they are a work of a society. And it takes a lot of effort to look at the different ways in which your own society society is created, the own biases that are already there, individual biased, right, that exist, but then recognize where and when and how to execute them within your game's narrative, uh, especially, right, with that. And so I wanted to call out the institution because while at the individual level, right, we see all of this uh, diversity, we have to recognize that even the game itself presents a larger institution that wants a sort of narrative to be told. Yeah. Right. And constantly, right. The, there, I don't want to be like the game, but certain characters will tell you that this is the narrative. Well, the game is telling it to you as well, but, and it's, it's using multiple voices to do that. Yeah, exactly. And so I feel like we've really actually gone deeper into this topic than I want, like we initially thought about, but I'm really happy (laughs) that we did. Um, Because now, 
Yeah, because well, you, you bring up something that that actually we should address, which is that the the title might not make a lot of sense to people because it is kind of a strange word. Oh my gosh, I can't believe we didn't even. Yes, okay. <laughs> let's. Hi, halfway through today's episode, let's talk about Pentiment, the game, its title, and why that's really important. <laughs> well, this is classic Furidashi. We we talk about the thing that really you should have talked about at the beginning, uh, about halfway through. <laughs> so the, the the title Pentiment actually comes from an Italian word. Sentimental, which is, well, the word originally means penance. And I think, so that sense of the word is in play. Um, But also it's really important as in our historical term, because it refers to this thing that you sometimes see in paintings where like the artist will have painted one thing and then either have like scraped it away or painted over it. But that sort of that original aspect of the painting is still sort of bleeding through slightly. And so this, I'm, the title of this game was very carefully chosen because it sort of represents the way in which within the game's narrative, you have all of these sort of aspects of the past that have been kind of preserved into the present, but in a kind of mutated form. And they sort of, they're bleeding through in the same way these, these images seem to sort of bleed through from, you know, previous like artistic constructions. And a lot of that sort of is based in sort of like the history of the town, this, this fictional town tossing where this take all this takes place technically it's supposed to be a village i don't want to get into sort of the uh economic no but it definitely it definitely yeah. sounds like pentiment like the title is very right cleverly chosen to show yeah. that things are partially obscured to show that it's going to be a bit i mean obviously fictional right tassing is fictional yeah um the characters are fictional uh, but also but, but also penance in the sense of like you a lot of the characters and especially andreas the character that you play in both acts one and two the sense that he is trying to make up for various things, and especially in Act Two, where he feels like even though he succeeded in life, he's become a master, he's been approved by the the Nuremberg City Council, um, he feels lost and he feels dejected and he feels stuck, and he's trying to get himself unstuck, which is why he once again gets caught up in a murder mystery in in, in this little you know German town. Um, but again, there's sort of that macrocosm microcosm relationship where like there's there are these historical events that he has sort of been thrust into, particularly this um, how should I, like conflict between the people of the t- people of Tassing and the Abbey, who are their essentially economic overlords, um, while at the same time also he is trying to recapture his own youth, his own past, you know, an, an earlier time in life when he probably felt a little less you know stuck a little less depressed but he can't really get back and so the sense of penance is like trying to make up for what has already happened like that too is built into the narrative structure of the game not just it's sort of it's aesthetics yeah so actually this is a great turning point to kind of go now from like right this foundation that we are we built into kind of the narrative and the gameplay right kind of aspects and i think for me let's look obviously let's start with narrative i said it first yeah. Um, when we look at this mystery plot structure and we playing Pentiment, or when I was playing Pentiment, I mean, I love a good mystery novel. Like, who who doesn't? I don't know. I love mystery. I love mystery <laughs> in games. I'm very curious by nature. So yeah. anytime I see something that is wrong or like is off, I like immediately go, oh, like that's a clue I should follow. Like that's the wrong yeah, yeah. way in the level, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then somehow ends up becoming the right way, right? Or correct path because I get more information. Yeah. And so I think that this, for me, the biggest thing that I found about 
mystery, right, or curiosity with Pentiment was actually like a sort of almost time limiting factor because time is so important. Yes. And then also I believed that like if we look at the microcosm or like the characters, right, so individuals versus the macro, right, which is the story or the whole area, who you chose to spend time with, when or where you chose to spend time with them, right, and the information that was gathered from that, right, those all like were able to kind of build these case profiles for who killed who, right? Because at the end of the day, a murder mystery is, you know, just like at a dinner party, someone dies and you have to figure out who killed them, right? And I think that this is not as fun as a murder mystery because someone (laughs) truly died. Um, But then like the whole history and then how the narrative plays out I guess through that, um, the history of the town, like the implications of the micro, who you spent time with, who you actually engaged with, to the actual macro, right? Yeah. How the story and how the history of the town unfolds during an already historical kind of period. I wonder, like, for me, that was really well executed. And I'm not um, I'm not really sure how that was executed for you or what you kind of pulled in from that. Well, what I especially appreciated about the way in which they use the mystery plot, as it were, is they both use it, but then also antagonize it at the same time. Because the thing is, you know, at the end of Act One, there is this denouement, like, you know, you as Andreas have, like, you know, supposedly completed your investigation and you're going to accuse somebody and that person gets executed. <laughs> like, oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. So hold on. Um, uh, something that I forgot to do because I'm yeah. sick, but that we always should do now that we're talking about whenever we talk about specific games, the following and the remainder of this episode will and contain spoilers for the game Pentiment. If you have not played Pentiment and do not mind mechanical or story spoilers, please continue listening to this episode. But we just have to warn you that while we do try to censor the spoilers, at least a little bit, yeah. um, obviously, uh, there's no way to critique or to academically discuss a game without spoiling that game's content, especially when you're talking about narrative. So Yeah, and especially when you're talking about a murder mystery where the whole point is you're to figure it out. <laughs> well, actually, um, but, the fi- but the figuring it out is the interesting part because the thing is you, you come to a conclusion, like in order to pro- progress in the game, you as Andreas have to go into the town square. You have to accuse somebody, that person gets executed. But... Unlike a classic murder mystery where, you know, during the denouement, like that's essentially the climax of the game. That's not actually the climax of the game. What happens is time keeps going and you as Andreas in subsequent acts actually have to deal with the ramifications of the choices that you made. So instead of it being about and the thing is, it's always not. I don't know. When I was playing. I was pretty certain of the person that I accused, but also as I was going through and I'm like, there is another explanation for these events. And part of the reason why this character looks bad is because of the prejudices of the people involved, not necessarily because I think they did it. Yeah. Okay. And that's really like the heart of the the structure to me is that when we talk about mystery games, it's a detective game. It's I'm going to find out who really did it. Right. And then you accuse that person and it's like, you know, Assassin's Creed, like for unity. Woo, congratulations. You <laughs> yeah. selected the right individual, chase them across the city and murder them. Yeah. Um. I mean, maybe not in every detective. Case, <laughs> maybe, maybe not necessarily murder. Definitely not in Grim Fandango <laughs> for sure. Right. But what I would say is that, you know, that that's like the, that's the trace. That's the thrill. That's what you expect of an action adventure title. 
Yeah. But in this game, um, and this is why I brought up the spoilers, is that they don't use, it's not a mystery game. It really, it doesn't really feel like that. And it's not a detective game. It has the mystery plot structure. Yes. And that's incredibly important is its plot structure. So for anybody who uh, just wants a really brief recap, right? Structure is like how something is formatted. Plot is the order of events in which they take place. A mystery, right? Is obviously, it's a mystery, okay? Yeah. You need to figure it out. But when we talk <laughs> about mystery plot structure, what we're saying is that it uses a mystery, like a mystery novel, and that there's something you need to discover yep. and figure out that not quite everyone has, right, with all the information. You must collect the information and present, right, kind of a an execution or like a, a, a my gosh, I'm trying to say a debate, evidence. That's yeah, the evidence. word. Yeah. You get the information, present evidence, right, and you make an accusation. Unlike, say, detectives or, you know, ace attorney, it's not about being right. It's actually about the choices and how those choices are represented, which is the plot structure of a mystery. Yeah. So it actually, like, lures you narratively into thinking that you're solving a mystery when, in reality, like Nicholas is saying, as I'm playing it as a writer and as I started uh, spending time with all of Tassing's residences, right, and starting to understand them, I realized that it was the prejudices of those around them. Or it was like, I found a lot of motives, but there was actually no way I think they could have could have killed them. Yeah. Like, truly. Right? And I found myself realizing that, like, I am not going to be right. This accusation, if I make any accusation, is wrong. And that means the plot structure. I still had to have evidence. I had to, or I had to investigate. I had to find evidence and I had to, ex like, execute someone sorry but yeah i had to you know present that and make an accusation but what i realized is that the choices that i was making and who i was actually going to determine was like creating more of that right layer on which the story then builds and yeah. i found this out in a very specific scene i want to call out that takes place in andreas's mind and i've just been wanting to talk about this for a while so maybe <laughs> i'll shut up after this but <laughs> <clears throat> excuse me uh in andreas's mind he has this mindscape which is like an extra layer of the narrative where you're not just right in the real world necessarily you're also dealing with some serious shit inside your head yep. and of that you're talking to your muses right and when you're happy and you're excited everyone's happy but then there's this really beautiful figure of a woman who during a very crucial moment tells beatrice, you beatrice by the way from um, dante's inferno Okay, Beatrice from Dante's Inferno. There we go. I was like, you look really uh, important. And I was like, I remember your name. I won't be able to read it uh, now. Or the Divine Comedy, generally speaking, I guess. Yeah, it's, it's the Divine Comedy. Yeah, I was yeah. trying to, I was trying to like, I was, uh, I'm very sick, guys. Anyway, let's move <laughs> on. The point is that there's this mindscape thing. Yeah. Okay. And when you go into this mindscape, it's like a labyrinth. It's, uh, it's your history. It's like everything that's happened to you in your life, your fears. And one of those is the woman who then says, Andreas, like, be careful what you say. And perhaps it is better to not say anything. Yep. And obviously all the men and the fools, the devils of the scenes are like, no, of course you should accuse someone. Because <laughs> in, <laughs> yeah. that, in that moment, right? And also during that moment of the game on your first playthrough, this is the end of act one. You don't realize in your first playthrough that your accusation could be wrong or is wrong. Yeah. You don't realize that it doesn't really matter what you say. And in that moment, right, the woman goes, hey, maybe just 
don't. Just don't play the game. And I think that's what, which is like yeah. what I heard from her. No, I'm, I'm saying, no, don't play the game. Because I always say this whenever a narrative <laughs> in a game says, and this is my main argument for Life is Strange, <laughs> is that, hey, what if you just didn't play this game? Wouldn't have the story been much better? <laughs> and I think that this is actually a moment of that where you kind of don't want to do what she says as a player because, and this is where the player and the character, right, start to kind of uh, battle each other. Um, And I know I'm jumping ahead here into gameplay a little bit, but this is just where you want as a player to understand what historical layers you're adding onto Tassing. And you have to accuse someone to do it. Or honestly, you just really hate Brother Guy. And you're going to make sure he dies, right? Or yeah, he's yeah. your rival, okay? Yeah, so there's only yeah, yeah. two options. Uh, but if you do kind of not accuse anyone, right? Um, I mean, I don't know what happens. I think I know what happens because the game I know, tells I know you what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, I can tell you what happens if you want. Yeah, what happens? It is. So the guy who, like, so there is a fundamental problem with Beatrice's advice. It's like, yeah, it makes sense on one hand, but the whole reason why you got involved in the first place is because someone who is close to you, who you have a personal relationship with, has been accused of this crime. And if you don't do anything about it, they die. will be executed for it. Yeah. (laughs) And so, okay. So, but that's, and that's, that's what I thought would happen because the game pretty point blankly over several occasions tells you but what's and, interesting and i played through again it does happen if and you it don't does happen him. okay yeah. and what i think what's really interesting about that though is why i talked about the player and the character fighting is that the player has to make a constant choice to not save the character's like close friend mm-hmm. but then when the character doesn't when the player does that right the character is technically doing that and then has to live with the repercussions of them knowing that they chose not to save their friend. And that is just, that's that's fundamentally what I really wanted to talk about this game because it's that connection point, right? That it's not just about the the choices that you make or or the other situations. Um, It's it's really like that crux of, I don't know, of of uh, finutium is not a word. I think about minutia, the, like the, the, the little fine, yeah. Yeah, the it's details. the finite minutia, okay? Yeah. <laughs> is what I was trying to say, right? <laughs> it's the littlest, smallest detail, right? Makes, right, and, and done once can make, like, creates those larger impacts. So now we can... We can yeah, actually, let's talk about the way in which that's represented in terms of gameplay. Because the thing is, like, you don't get to control your saves in this game. I mean, that is a really important aspect of it. One that I actually find kind of frustrating. I don't like it when games do this. And if I had to knock Pentiment in one way, like it's it's another instance of, I see what you did there, but don't, please don't do that. Because <laughs> like, like, it, it also means that like when you finish the game, as we both did, your save completely resets. Like no, no, I can't no, go no. back actually, and- No, your go save back and, doesn't reset. Your save, yes, it, does it, well, does it reset and then do new game plus though? Or does it- well, because you have three save slots. That's why I'm trying to figure out. Sorry. Oh, well, for me, I couldn't go back and actually like look at anything that like I had previously done because I'd want I actually wanted to for like research purposes. So I started playing again in order to get to those points. Maybe I missed something. So. Oh, I see. Well, so 
in I played on Xbox Games Pass. I think you did as well. Yeah. I saw three save slots. So this is really important because I I don't I'm not trying to disagree or antagonize Nicholas here. I'm just yeah. trying to be very precise because I had three save slots, so I could technically have three playthroughs going on at once if I had, if I so chose. Yes. And I was under the impression that I could see the ending of the game and the choices I had made if I decided to continue from my final save. Uh n- not no. Okay, I I am honestly, as someone who also wanted to replay this for research purposes, was researching how to play this for research purposes <laughs> on the internet, and that is where I got this fact. Oh, okay. um, I, did not just I mean, it's possible that fact. you can do it, and I just didn't, and I can't, I couldn't figure it out. But no, totally fine. Okay, yeah. but but to, to Nicholas's point, um, just just because this is a, this is a very intentional design choice, you have to make <laughs> yeah. your safe system this way. Yeah, uh, yeah. we say very angrily. Um, <laughs> is that, or rather, you make your save system this way by doing less work on your save system, which in a way is actually making more work on your save system. It's just yeah. less work in some instance, right? More work in others before all the save state programmers like dox me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> please don't. I love you guys. You work way too hard for too little. All, all of you deserve raises. Having known one, having known a couple. So, yeah. uh, um, but yeah, no. Uh, so talk about that because you can't actually save scum. Like if you make a bad choice, like it's over. It's yeah, no, it's an it's clearly an intentional choice. And ideally, I wouldn't want it to be that way. But because it is that way, it does force you to confront the fact that as you progress with Andreas, and then later in Act 3 with Magdalena, that you always have to confront the ramifications of your choices. You don't get to just make new choices and therefore have new ramifications. Like you have to live in the world as it progresses. And so then interestingly enough, the gameplay progression very clearly mimics a historical progression. In other words, that fr- that choice by the designers may be frustrating, but it is a clear aesthetic decision done for very specific reasons. And as a result, it then means that you have to reflect on the past. And in fact, th- this is sort of relevant for Act 3, where Magdalena herself is trying to like create this mural in uh, the, it's the, the rat house, the, the sort of like the community hall for Tassing. And she actually has to make personal decisions. You, for her, have to make personal decisions about what aspects of Tossing's past you're going to represent and how you're going to represent them. And so then the fact that you have to confront the ramifications of all that has happened, both as Andreas and then also then later as Magdalena, like in many ways, the designers almost couldn't make any other choice. If they allowed you to save scum, then in many ways that third act gets like stripped of all of its like intense meaning and significance because one more thing that I want to add, and then I'll let you talk, (laughs) which is that like when you're, when you go back to the acts one and two, when you decide to engage in like a particular say investigation and the way you gather evidence, you're also then implicitly taking sides with certain people in conflicts that are broader than you. And then Magdalena then has to sort of try to represent those conflicts when you get to her. And she also has to deal with those conflicts at the same time. And so you're never allowed to just like be the detective or like be this exceptionalized individual. You are always pressed upon by these larger social forces. And that's actually something I wanted to kind of highlight actually the most in the mechanics. And I wanted to kind of talk about when we look at mystery plot 
That's a narrative thing. Now let's look at mystery plot as a gameplay thing, right? I actually just wanted you to talk more on this topic and kind of, you know, if we look at the base mechanics of Pentiment, um, you're going to look at it as a point and click dialogue choice adventure. That's really it, right? And it's got really beautiful visuals that are representative of the early modern, right? Late medieval, not really, uh, but, you know, period-ish, right? Where where honestly, like, it's got this type of aesthetic. But I really want to hone in on what Nicholas ended that right argument with and expand and extrapolate on it for it is not you playing the detective. It is larger forces at play upon you, pressing upon you to make a decision that is wrapped in the layer, right, of playing the detective. And so how do we kind of compare this, say, to games like Sam and Max, Monkey Island, Grim Fandango, more people, maybe they, I know I played Sam and Max, um, but I'm sure Grim Fandango, at least people have heard, (laughs) are more aware of that. But even um, uh, The Wolf Among Us, right, like channeling the Sam and Max, right? How do we actually look at mystery storytelling in a point and click adventure that is more about celebrating the detective versus pentiments, right? Celebrating maybe more the, what is it celebrating? I guess maybe it's a good question to kind of bridge and extrapolate that. So if you think about sort of like classic murder mysteries, there, there is this emphasis on sort of like overlaying the, the, the denouement, sort of like the scene in which like everything gets explained and, you know, the, the murder is revealed, et cetera, like making that the climax. But in this instance, like it, the game almost kind of doesn't, I mean, it does have a climax. There is a sort of like a, a big reveal at the very end of the game. But in many ways, what it wants you to focus on is, as you said earlier, Lauren, like all these minutiae in like the relationships with various characters, like in the way that like Magdalena's remit as sort of this artist who is creating this mural is to sort of represent Tossing's history. Your remit as the player and therefore sort of like the fundamental motivation for your gameplay experience is to, in a sense, bear witness to the complexity and all of these various things that are sort of going on within the context of those larger sort of like macrocosmic forces. You as the player, whereas, you know, when you're playing a game like, you know, Monkey Island, the whole point, like the denouement, the mystery, the big reveal at the end, like that is your end goal. You want to get there. That's what you're striving for. Whereas in Pentiment, what you're striving for is like, yes, you do want to know ultimately what's going on, who is responsible for all of these like violent acts that have taken place. But what you really want to know is sort of the complex web of relationships um, history of you know of the town because it's not just the, the history of the people but it's also the history of the town this like uh this the saint that is sort of the, the patron saint of the town who may in fact be modeled on a roman god and like uncovering all of that and seeing all of that interplay and the fact that the town itself is literally built on old roman ruins and discovering those roman ruins and how they have been sort of repurposed for other things over the years like all of that stuff bearing witness to all of those things things that is what you're trying to do as a player and in fact in many ways if you just rush through and it's like okay solve the mystery solve the mystery i think you really fundamentally miss the point of the game because if you think about the way in which it's structured in terms of its maps and how you like move around the whole point is to explore to sort of see all the possible things that you can see meet all of the people that you can possibly meet and get sort of like entangled in their lives 
That is what Andreas's purpose is. Yeah, let's really dive into that. Because I was just about to ask Nicholas, like playing through this experience, like what struck out to me was about how much friction was put between me and my goals. Now, whether my goal was to find the small child hiding somewhere, uh, I don't think I ever actually found her. I just gave up uh, (laughs) at a certain point. Or it was I need to... uh, have made better choices in the past to be able to like roll persuasively, right? To get information from someone. I found that the structure of the map, the structure of tassing itself, right? Provided a high level of friction that I wouldn't have seen, right? In maybe in just more third person, right? Action adventure sort of titles, right? You'd have fast travel, you'd have a horse. Yeah. You know, you would at least be able to, to move maybe quicker like you could run or sprint right but in this game it was very much just like shuffle 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 right so so what are your thoughts on like looking at the the map structure of the game and what are the the mechanics and systems that really enabled pentiment to get to that right moment of detail-oriented focus not on the mystery but on the people of tassing well, because the thing is, like, as you're wandering around, you will see different people in different places. And, you know, this is sort of a classic R- RPG pro- you know, trope. You, you know, you enter the town and you see the NPCs and, you know, you can go talk to the NPCs. But whereas, like, you know, the NPCs and say, like, you know, the original Final Fantasy just kind of say stuff for the purpose of saying stuff. The people who are the residents of Tossing, like, if you ignore someone then like like for example like you know in act one if you ignore a particular individual or if you're snarky to them or if you just for whatever reason don't like accord them that the attention that they would otherwise deserve if you need something from them in act two they'll tell you to fuck off <laughs> like you you won't be able to get the, the thing from that, that you need and so that's what i mean by their sort of that that complex interweb you the fact that they're all sort of scattered about town, you have to, as a player, want to go explore this little town. You have to want to go to the mill and talk to the the asshole miller guy who wants to like take you hunting with him. You have to want to do these things because if you don't, you're not actually going to have the kinds of like personal connections that you need in order to progress the so-called plot of, you know, the, the, the murder mystery narrative. Yeah. And, and when we look at, sorry, go ahead. And then or... I, so for me, that's why I, I think like, because the fact then when you get to the actual like denouement of the murder mysteries, that the fact that they're so unsatisfying, it, it sort of like pricks your ear a little bit. And it's like, well, maybe the point was the people that you were talking to in those relationships. Maybe the point wasn't this thing that you were sort of always driving towards. And in fact, if you think about Andreas's character himself, he is a person who himself feels like he's driven towards a particular end. And then when he gets to that end, he feels deeply unsatisfied. Yeah. And I was actually wanting to kind of Okay, no, I swear I have something here, guys. Sorry, I like took a <laughs> took a brief pause there as I kind of looked at the time. Um, but because we're coming to an end here, but I really did want to close on when I as I was playing this game as a narrative designer, right? And particularly coming from systems, I think the most important thing from Pentiment for me to kind of build off what Nicholas is talking about here is you the player wants, right, to learn and figure out and connect with the people of Tassing. And I think the biggest thing for me coming out of it as a game designer was recognizing that the choices 
right, that you made in Pentiment, both as a player, right, or as a character, say, physically, right, in dialogue yeah. choices, yeah. were so important, not so much for your personal story, but for the story of Tassing. Yeah. And I really wanted to call out the ways in which Pentiment on uh, my playthrough helped motivate me, right, despite the friction, despite the large map, despite the structure. And I think a couple of big things for me, um, and I'm going to go with the easiest one here, which was the writing and kind of the, you know, almost meta game writing in the the text of the the uh, patrons, the the people, the populace themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, they very much were like, Andreas, you need to find out who did this, otherwise Piero was going to die. Yeah. And I was like, okay, cool. And then another person in town would also go, hey, I heard about this thing already, which it's a small town that does happen. Yeah. And then they'd go, you need to do this, or this person's going to die. Or yeah. are you going to let this person die? Yeah. Are you? And like so many people would echo chamber it that obviously yeah. I'm calling out right the writing. But yeah. I think what's really important is it's not just about recognizing the the writing of it, but it's an act one, all of the NPCs are placed in their respective role locations. So yeah. for example, the baker is in the bakery. Yeah, I know that sounds really dumb and almost tutorialized <laughs> in that way, but I can't stress enough working in AAA where you're like, hey, so the baker took a walk outside at the Smith's house. And I'm like, okay, well, how is the player going to know that they're a baker? And yeah. that sounds so dumb because it's like, well, they're called, you know, Brian the baker. <laughs> I'm like, nope, someone is not going to read their name. And yeah. right. And I think that that actually was incredibly important. So yeah. it was not just the writing, right, in that echo chamber that tends to happen, right, in history. Yeah. But it was also, right, second, the placement of people on the map for these roles. If you needed to talk to the nuns, they're all right in the cloister. If you need to talk yeah. to the monks, they're all in the monastery. Yeah. If you need to talk to a monk and he's out of the monastery, oh, that's sus. Yeah. What are you doing out of your role? Yeah. Right? And I think that then in Act 2, this obviously gets broken apart. And yeah. then you get to see people in a more, yeah, I don't want to say realistic sense, but in a much less tutorialized, like, you know, kind of well, sense. You get, to, you get to see them in the sense that a murder mystery often doesn't allow. You get to see that their lives continue and you get to see that, that the life of your character continues as well. And so despite the fact that you have this sort of like murder mystery plot, it's, it is being upended in this really useful way. And I think with that, we're going to have to sort of cut things off for this week. Uh, for those of you who want to hear more about sort of like how murder mystery plot structures, you know, work in video games and how that sort of like influenced game design over time, we'll be discussing that in greater depth on our Patreon episode, which will be coming out next week. If you want to hear that episode and also just a ton of stuff that we have already recorded over the past two years, go to patreon.com forward slash foodidashi and you can sign up at the $5 level. If you sign up at a higher tier, you will gain access to our Discord and also to the various like um, projects, written projects that Lauren and I are working on even as we speak. So if that's something that's interesting to you, you can sign up at that level. But we'll really take you wherever you want to be. So with that, is there anything that you want to leave the, the fine people with, Lauren? Uh, everyone stay healthy, play Pentiment, um, and uh, have a great, happy, happy new year.